Welcome to the Aviation Scopecast. In this monthly podcast, we cover current events that impact the aviation industry. And whether it is the manufacturers, the airlines, the financial markets, or just little bits and pieces we stumbled upon, all of it has a chance of being featured on here. Who are we, you might ask? I'm Helen Spro, responsible for the aircraft financing sector at Scope Ratings and with a background in structuring and arranging aircraft financing transactions. And I am Frank Netscher. I work at Scope Analysis, where we cover real assets from an equity perspective. There, I am responsible for all transportation-related assets. Together, Helen and I aim to get you as enthusiastic about aviation as we are. Please keep in mind that our statements reflect our personal opinion, not necessarily Scope's view on the topics covered. With that being said, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Flight 008 of the Aviation Scopecast. And yes, you have guessed correctly, it is still a home office edition, since Germany is obviously still in lockdown. Um, but I think we have kind of fixed the audio at, at least a bit. Um, most of all, we are back again to talk about interesting developments and occurrences that have happened in aviation lately. But first, and as almost always, we will go back in time and see what aviation events happened in the past. So, Helen, which April event was the most interesting for you? Oh, wait, are we, are we still doing the historical facts again this, uh, this month? Y yes, yes, uh, last episode was an exception. Oh, welcome to uh, my world, confusion on a high level. Uh, so, okay, then I'll offer a month and not a single event. So I would then say April 2020, uh, the <laughs> month with the least amount of air travel this millennium. <laughs> okay, nice, nice safe, nice safe, Thank yeah. You. <laughs> but you, Frank, uh, you, uh, you sound a bit more prepared. So what did you find looking into history? Um, yeah, I actually did my homework, so, <laughs> um, and I found it was uh, very easy to find a fact for April. Um, and I would also say it will be difficult to find a clearer winner than this in, in future episodes. So we roll back to the year 1961, when we had the first crewed spaceflight in history. Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space and the first to orbit the Earth. And it took him 108 minutes to orbit Earth, and I was actually surprised it was so quick, which probably also shows that I did not return to physics after graduating high school. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found interesting was that um, in Russia there was fear at the time that the rocket would not be recognized. Uh, Helen, can you guess why? Uh, no, you caught me off guard again, Frank. No, I can't. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> it's all on purpose, you know that. And um, no, in order to be recognized as a record, um, there was actually a rule that the pilot had to land with his craft again. And as you can probably imagine, Gagarin, of course, used the parachute to jump off before landing. So um, this information was therefore concealed for the time being, but could not be upheld because, I mean, people figured out how, how the rocket was constructed. So Gagarin's spaceflight, um, his records were nonetheless certified and again reaffirmed by the World Aeronautical Federation, which revised its rules, acknowledged that the crucial steps of a safe launch, orbit, and return had been accomplished. That is great, though, because when you're that brave that you're willing to shoot yourself into space, if you manage to get back alive, I, I feel that you're uh, entitled to be recognized for that effort. Yeah, and also entitled to a parachute, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but will any of these events go down in the history books? I mean, from today's perspective, most definitely. Gagarin is, is untouchable in that regard, and... Um, 
Yeah, I think the ongoing pandemic has probably saved that as well. But we've also been wrong before, though, Frank. <laughs> very true, very true. So on today's episode, we'll be giving an update on the current situation of the aviation industry in light of the ongoing corona pandemic. And we'll also be addressing a few questions. Uh, oh, sorry, one question it is actually from a listener who was wondering how you actually store an aircraft. And for the third and final topic, we'll be looking at what we call the narrow body duopoly, and we will be discussing uh, whether any new entrants will be able to gain a foothold. So without further ado, let's get this episode started, Frank. Okay, um, as you heard, as a first topic, we will give you an update on what has happened over the last month in the aviation industry. So there is, of course, an all-dominating topic, uh, not only for aviation alone, uh, but globally for all people and industries. And um, it is this topic that we'll be addressing first. So, um, Helen, what are the latest developments regarding the corona pandemic? Yeah, so we see that more and more flights uh, are being cancelled, and the number of planes in storage is reaching new record levels every day. So we have received a question from one of our listeners about this, and that's why we'll be giving a little extra time later on in this episode to discuss it. Yeah, it should, of course, also be mentioned that the um, sale of conduct to, to LUX has failed. However, regardless of this, um, we expect to see a strong wave of consolidation over the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months, especially in the still very fragmented European market. Um, but here the virus is more acting as an accelerator, I would say, rather than being the cause. Yeah, that's true. And I'm also quite convinced that Condor will eventually find a buyer. Compared yeah, to other airlines, yeah, they're not, not doing too badly. Um, and that's also why, we, why they will, would be able to score this, uh, uh, this bridge loan that they got. Yeah, and, and speaking of airlines and financial distress, I mean, U.S. airlines have just received um, a bailout package of $25 billion. But it comes with a price, and um, the closing was not as quick and easy, and not only the airlines, but also other analysts had expected. And it should also be mentioned that the airlines had actually asked for more than only those $25 uh, billion. Yeah, only. Yes. It's a shocking word uh, to use when you talk about $25 billion, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think we should explain what we mean with it came at a price. Yeah, uh, so the government obtains a stake in the airline through warrants from uh, every airline that participates in the program. And each airline is set to create uh, warrants representing 10% of the loan amount. So given the tedious approval process, uh, the degree of complexity and rigor of the approach, it actually suggests that a difficult path lies ahead for applicants, even though they've gotten this loan. Mm. In any case, it, it can be assumed that the government has gained access to data on the airlines that probably every rating analyst dreams of and would have gladly taken with a big smile. So shout out to our jealous colleagues from the corporate rating department here. Oh, by the way, uh, the latest forecast from IATA expects that full-year passenger demand for 2020 uh, will be down by 48% compared to 2019. And this actually corresponds with a revenue drop of $314 billion. So a 55% decline compared to 2019. 314 billion. Yeah. <laughs> and, and still, I, I can't help but think that these are still optimistic figures. I mean, only, only half. <laughs> so maybe just call me pessimistic. 
Well, I'm not sure I would call you pessimistic. I tend to uh, tend to agree, <laughs> Frank. And when we're looking at Europe, there isn't too much domestic travel by air. Uh, so uh, I mentioned this because, yes, I do expect the lockdown to be gradually lifted, but I still expect restrictions to be kept in place regarding international travel for a while. And this will obviously continue to affect airlines. Yeah, and manufacturers and lessers and the, the I mean, the entire aviation industry. True. Yeah, speaking of lessers. Yeah, yeah, good topic. How are they getting along? Well, you can imagine. That bad? Yeah, I would say so. So, not airline level bad, but yes, <laughs> bad. Uh, and I think we've only seen the start of it. And they're getting creative, if you can call it that. Uh, since I read that one lessor delivered an aircraft remotely to an airline for the very oh, first time. Okay, but yeah. it's a real, a real aircraft, yeah? Exactly. And it was delivered just a couple of days ago on April the 9th. Uh, and it was delivered fully remote from the manufacturer production line. So the story was confirmed hmm. by the manufacturer themselves, actually. Well, fair. I mean, we are currently experiencing in our own environment, our own lives, that, that necessity is ultimately the, the mother of invention, as the saying goes. So in this respect, Congratulations to the Cesar, who, who made a virtue out of necessity, and he will probably be able to benefit from, from leaner processes in the future. Indeed. But from this marginal note back to the main issue of Lessors, uh, what we hear from Lessors is that they have already received requests uh, for exemptions from uh, payment obligations from a clear majority of their customers. So that includes requests for short-term rent deferrals as well. Yeah, and as a consequence, they, they naturally try to optimize their asset pipeline. I mean, optimizing in the sense means, of course, canceling orders, or if the former is not possible, at least postponing deliveries. And um, just recently, we heard from, from Golden Avalon, two big lessers, that they had canceled orders of, of the Boeing uh, Max. Oh, yeah, the good old Max. Remember <laughs> the time, Frank, when we were trying to guess when it would re-enter the market? It feels a, like ages ago. Yeah, I mean, even last week, last week feels like 50 years ago, but yeah, those were the days. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, the whole month of March feel like it's been a decade long. But yeah. um, the deliveries of other aircraft models have also been rescheduled. It's not only the MAX, actually. Yeah, and the most popular option um, seems to be to postpone the upcoming deliveries that were scheduled for 2022 to 2022 and push them if achievable to, to 2023 and four. So this is also an indicator of how much longer it could take before similar demand level to, to 2019 is expected. Yeah, true. And another thought then just popped into my uh, head. If the lessors are getting those planes later, what about the airlines who intended to lease them? Did they consult with them beforehand or did they just present the fact saying that they will be getting their aircraft later? I mean, uh, they probably don't really mind that right now, anyway. Yeah, do yeah. on the one hand that, but please don't worry. Um, I mean, one lesser actually said that it had not signed a single agreement with any airline to lease any of the 75 max jets they just rescheduled. Ooh, so they're all speculative uh, orders. Yes. And yeah, uh, speculative purchases are, of course, not particularly helpful at the moment. So, okay, then uh, no worries for the airlines, but now I worry for the lessors even more. So uh, <laughs> it must be said that in general, lessors have better financials than airlines. 
Yeah. But still, they're faced with the fact that airlines will stop paying lease rates and will look into the further. And the current practice seems to be that the airline asks the letter for financial support, whatever that means, but that the lease remains in force until such support is obtained anyhow. So, and payments continue as contracted for the time being. And even though the plans are, of course, not in the air at the moment, and no money is earned with them. So, oh yeah, this, uh, this brings us on to the next topic, doesn't it? So we received a question from a listener about how to actually store an aircraft and what has to be taken into account when doing so. So first of all, uh, the current facts, uh, which of course uh, change all the time. So therefore, uh, as an additional information, uh, the status and the numbers that we're uh, mentioning now corresponds to April 15th. Yeah, and if you look at the Airbus and Boeing fleets, you see that twice as many aircraft are in storage as are still active. Twice as many? Wow. Yeah. I've, I would also imagine that there are a huge difference between models here. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually really twice as many because about 7,500 are still in operation with the airlines, while more than 14,000 are inactive. And of course, you're right about the models. Um, as you'd expect, the narrow bodies look a lot better than the white bodies. Um, and if you look at, for example, the 747, only about 10% were still in service. And the A380, um, well, the number stands at 1.7%. Yeah, that's not surprising, unfortunately. And um, you can read this almost daily uh, in some of the headlines that the 747 and A380 are the first models that were completely taken out of service by some airlines. And they will probably be the last ones which will be put back into service, if they will be put back into service at all. Yeah, exactly. If at all, I was going to mention that. Yeah, it's a bit first in and last out again. Almost sounds like an incoterm of some sort. Yeah, and the demand shock uh, responsible for the storage of all these planes will continue for quite some time. So, it'll, yeah, it will probably take as long as it takes to find a vaccine that people will be happy to sit in a cramped economy class again if it doesn't uh, change our behavior in general, though. Yeah, and actually you see our behavior changing in general. I mean, enjoying a concert, for example, where a few thousand sweaty people jump next to you, I just can't wait to experience that again. But, yeah, back to, uh, back to aircraft. Yeah, we're rambling on again, as uh, usual. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in my opinion, one effect uh, will be that uh, the age um, at which airplanes are decommissioned will naturally decrease. And mm -hmm. in fact, in some models, it will drop considerably, I guess. Yeah, and, and here again, the A380 was unfortunately the, the transitor. I believe the youngest aircraft that were sent to, to part out, meaning that they were, they were becoming spare parts, um, the youngest were only 10 or 11 years old. But um, yeah, let's, let's roll back to the question of the listener. Um, leaving a plane on the ground sounds easy, I mean, you land it, you park it, you're done. But parking a plane is not like leaving a car in your driveway. It requires extensive maintenance, not, not to mention a lot of space. And yeah, concerning the last part, uh, it helps, of course, that the airports are currently underutilized and many taxiways can be converted into parking spots or even entire major uh, Berlin airports that are not <laughs> yet in operations can be used. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, let's, let's do a shameless plug here. And regarding the, the new Berlin airport, I, remain, I recommend our podcast episode number 002, where we had devoted plenty of time to this disaster. 
And it's important to understand that all grounded aircraft still need servicing. Uh, so the servicing is vital for ensuring that aircraft are fit to fly when they are called back into service. Yeah, and from a technical point of view, there are a whole lot of actions that must be done, especially when the aircraft are parked in a flight-ready condition. This means that the aircraft and the systems are maintained and tested regularly, even if all the sensitive systems and components are um, covered and protected. Yeah, and I read that a parked aircraft requires separate checks every 7, 14, and 30 days. So the seven-day checks are the most basic ones, which is a visual ones, uh, like sort of look over of the airplane and all this protective equipment. But then for the 14-day check, uh, much more is involved. So aircraft batteries are reconnected and the main electrical systems energized. And this is followed by various system checks on things like flight, controls, wheel brakes, etc. Yeah, and the 30-day the check, as you can imagine, requires maintenance staff to carry out much more extensive work. Um, for example, all external protections are removed and the engines are actually started. Air conditioning and, where applicable, eye systems on the wings and engines, everything is inspected to ensure there are no problems. And so once this is done, well, the aircraft is placed back into parking status. I heard from one airline, actually, that the preparation of one aircraft into flight condition will only take one whole day. But okay. there is, of course, hope that it could be done faster. Oh. Oh, and by the way, do you know these little um, chocks, I believe they are called, that are being placed behind the wheels of the, the parked planes? So you mean this, like, little wooden plastic thingies or whatever they are? Yeah, wooden, wooden, actually. Um, yeah, those things you, you keep, uh, that keep the plane from rolling away. And normally it takes, it takes four for, uh, per plane, but now they use between 10 and 12 um, as the, the chocks are required for each plane since the parking brakes will fade even if they are set on when an aircraft is parked for a longer period. And absolutely no one wants to see an aircraft rolling on its own on the tarmac, do they? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so at some airports, there is now actually a shortage of those trucks. And I read about Finnair, which was uh, pretty interesting. Finnair came up with a great solution. I think at least I find it great. <laughs> so they, they contacted a local carpentry shop, um, and they made them 500 so-called Corona trucks within two weeks. Huh. Yeah, well, what many airlines also do, of course, is to bring forward necessary maintenance works and thorough cleaning of the aircraft. So another interesting fact is that when aircraft are parked, the tires must be rotated every 7 to 14 days to avoid flat spots. So this can be done either by towing the aircraft over the tarmac, or alternatively, the ground crew can jack up the aircraft to turn the wheels manually, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I would make that dependent on the aircraft. I mean, an A380, I believe, has 22 wheels, and each weigh about 100, 120 kilo. Yeah, I know which option I would prefer if I was a member of the ground crew there. I completely agree with you, Frank. I think what you're aiming at. And all in all, I think we can assume that they will be hearing a lot more about park planes, um, as nobody expects a quick turnaround in this yeah. case. Yeah, I would agree. And, um, I mean, the industry's outlook, it grows somewhat darker by the day. Um, and the scale of the crisis makes a V-shaped recovery unlikely. I would almost say impossible at the moment. So, realistically, it will be U-shaped recovery with um, domestic travel actually coming back um, way faster than the international markets. Yeah. And the domestic uh, air traffic is, once again, an excellent transition to the next topic. Yes, if I had any idea. <laughs>
So yes, that's right. Um, because domestic air travel is quite relevant to our third and final topic of this episode. Um, the duopoly of that um, Airbus and Boeing have on the narrow-body aircraft. So we want to take a look at the status quo in this respect and see whether there are any competitors who can break the duopoly in the medium term. But first, however, we need to define the framework. Uh, so what exactly is a narrow-body aircraft, Frank? Yeah, I mean, uh, there is no fixed definition, so we want to define the usual parameters at least. So a narrow-body has a single aisle. It, it has normally six seats per row, and it sits between 140 to 200 passengers, I would say. And it offers a typical range of yeah, 6,000 to 7,500 or 7,000 kilometers. Um, and so sorted by size, the regional aircraft are ranked below the narrow bodies and the wide bodies, obviously, above. And of course, the best-known models um, are the Airbus A320 and the Boeing 737. So let me break the history of the A320 down a bit. Um, the A320 was launched in 1984 and entered service in 1988. Uh, so the new version that most of you probably heard about, uh, the A320neo, entered service in 2016. And the A320neo is supposed to be 15 to 20% more fuel efficient than the old A320, while having an airframe commonality of 95% with its predecessor. So at the end of last year, uh, almost 10,000 models had, had been delivered, and the backlog stood at, yeah, over 6,000. Uh, and the aircraft enjoys great popularity, uh, we must say, and it's been used by around, it's used by around 330 operators around the world. Yeah, and then there's obviously the, the big competitor, the um, Boeing 737. Um, the original... 737 entered service actually back in 1968, and interestingly enough, at least for me, uh, with Lufthansa. I would have never guessed that. Um, and you have all heard of the latest installment of the model, the 737 MAX, and its struggles, obviously. So um, the MAX, which is the direct competition of the A320neo, the MAX entered service in 2017, so one year after the NEO. And at the end of last year, which is probably a century ago by now, um, the delivery stood by, yeah, about 10,500. So, and the model still had a remaining backlog of 4,500. And the number of operators, uh, they, they even beat the 8320 with over 500 in total. So that's the, the two current most popular uh, narrow-body aircraft they have in the market. So it's the two established top dogs, if you can call it that, who have practically half the market between them. So, of course, uh, politics play a certain role here uh, because U.S. airlines tend to have the Boeing in their fleets and the European airlines tend to have the A320. So, neutrally speaking, uh, the models are very comparable uh, with a slight advantage for the A320neo over the MAX. Uh, and, of course, uh, it helps uh, that the NEO is actually allowed to fly these days. <laughs> oh, God, I was kind of waiting for that low blow, yeah. Um, so... But is there competition, you ask? Um, well, sort of, kind of, I would say. Um, we would therefore like to briefly introduce the two main challengers. They are from China and Russia, respectively. And I'd say challengers is certainly a better term than competitors at this, this very moment. So uh, to start with the uh, Cormac C919, 
So Cormac is a Chinese manufacturer, and the C919 program was launched back in 2008. And the first flight was expected for 2014, but it actually took place three years later than planned in 2017. So the first the deliveries to airlines are expected to happen in 2021, 2022. Um, and this uh, time window of 14 years between launch and the first delivery shows two things. So firstly, the development of an aircraft is highly a highly complicated matter. And then second of all, not everything went smoothly with this model. So uh, at last count, the order book stood at about 300 aircraft with only 10 uh, orders coming from non-Chinese customers. So as we mentioned, politics might play an important role uh, with this aircraft as it does in aviation in general. Yeah, and let's move a bit west before we get into more details. Um, west to Russia, as, as confusing as that might sound. Um, the second challenger is the Irkut MC-21. Um, Irkut is a branch of the uh, so-called United Aircraft Corporation. It's a Russian company which has the Russian state as the majority holder, uh, as we said, politics. So the MC-21 was launched in 2007, one year before the C919. And as with the Chinese um, aircraft, the first flight took place in 2017. So we are on comparable timelines here when it comes to our challengers. And um, the plant's entry service is uh, 2021 but was originally scheduled to 2012, actually. And the, the order book stands at roughly 175, with only 16 of those orders coming from non-Russian customers, 10 from Azerbaijan and then six from Egypt, to be um, precise. What is noticeable, uh, and therefore is the ob obviously repeated setback development of both models, um, also, the intervals between the test flights are much, much longer than with the more established manufacturers. So with the uh, C919, there were about five months between the first and the second test flight, whereas with the Airbus A350, for example, uh, it was only five days between those two test flights. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a difference. And mm. it also didn't help that in 2018, um, ten Chinese nationals, including intelligence officials, um, were indicted in the U.S. for working with Comac to steal the secrets of some more like 13 foreign aerospace companies that were working on the C919. And the C919 is also a rather cautious design, similar to the 30-year-old older A320. Mm -hmm. So it's more competition for the older generation uh, of A320 and 737, I would say, than it's actually a competitor for the Neo and the Max. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, the Comex goal is to take a fifth of the global narrowbody market and a third of the Chinese market by 20, uh, 2035, actually. Yeah, and I'm more optimistic about the latter than the former, I have to say. Yeah, I agree with that. And why would an airline or a lessor buy a 30-year-old model that will probably also cost more to operate? And it also has a shorter range. So... The question is then, is the list price that much cheaper than a Max or a Neo? Yeah, but why would they buy it? I mean, politics. Um, China considers it as a source of national pride. So I would say it's safe to assume that there will be some pressure on Chinese airlines to rather buy a C919 than, for example, a Max or Neo. Definitely. And at least the Chinese market is big and growing. But what yeah. about Russia? 
Well, the MC21 is, is more modern than the C919, so it has that going for it. How is it more modern, actually? Well, unlike the, the C919, it is not a copy of a Western design. It actually advances the state of, uh, the state of art in cabin standards and structures. And, um, and currently, both projects use the same Western engines as the Neo and the Max, but Russia is actually developing an alternative engine for its plane. Yeah, and Russia has also already learned how to work with uh, Western Airlines and the requirements for sales and support of a worldwide airliner project. Mm -hmm. So for Comac, which was uh, formed in 2008, sales and support of civil airliners is a completely new territory for them. Yeah, so, so if I was a betting man, um, my money would be on the C919 having more sales, just due to the political pressure, but for the uh, MC21 to actually be the better aircraft. But all in all, though, I, I would be surprised if they would be considered a real alternative to the current Airbus and Boeing models. I mean, not in a completely neutral setting, at least. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. And I think, uh, yeah, with this in mind, uh, we'll end today's flight. Uh, so please do not hesitate to reach out to either, uh, either of us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe and healthy. So um, this ends today's episode. Please feel free to leave your comments or requests for topics with us. Or simply reach out to Helen or me on LinkedIn. We hope you enjoyed this episode and spread the word if you like this format and its content. We hope you're tuning in again next month for our next flight.